Welcome back to The Foreign Desk with Lisa Daftari. Another big week for U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, although it doesn't seem like it because we don't hear anything about it. Earlier this week, the president reissued harsh and targeted sanctions on the Iranian regime, slapping sanctions on over two dozen people and entities involved in Iran's weapons program, basically snapping back the U.N. sanctions that were supposed to be snapped back. And in the backdrop, executions and gross human rights violations, support of terror proxies all over the world, and the latest, a report that says Iran likely has enough material listen to this, to have a bomb by the end of 2020. All of that and the rest of the world is up in arms about the U.S. imposed sanctions. They're even calling it illegal. Let's take a look at Donald Trump's written statement on the sanctions earlier this week. The executive order I am issuing today blocks the property and interests in property in the United States of those who contribute to the supply, sale, or transfer of conventional arms to or from Iran, as well as those who provide technical training, financial support and services, and other assistance related to these arms. This executive order is critical to enforcing the UN arms embargo on Iran. The order will greatly diminish the Iranian regime's capacity to export arms to terrorists and dangerous actors throughout the region as well as its ability to acquire weapons to build up its own forces. So there you have it. Sanctions highly focused on those contributing to the supply, sale, or transfer of arms to or from Iran to diminish its capacity to export arms and acquire weapons. What's the problem? Why is there opposition to this? Why stop a rogue nation that's headed towards a nuclear weapon? And why stand in the way of Hezbollah and Hamas's financial backers? Why speak out about the execution of a young wrestler whose only crime was attending a peaceful protest, a real peaceful protest? And the quote-unquote free nations of the world are telling us that they won't support it. To help us make more sense of this and the region as a whole is my good, good friend, commentator and Middle East expert, who is also out with his millionth book, The Choice, which compares the foreign policies of Trump versus Obama and Biden. Dr. Walid, it is my utmost pleasure to welcome you to the show. It is my pleasure, my honor to be with you. You are now becoming a leading commentator on foreign policy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure is mine, and I, I thank you. I know how busy you are, so I want to jump right into this. First of all, let's build up to this. I mean, why sanction the regime? We've sanctioned them in the past. They figured out how to bypass the sanctions in areas that are most critical, military, technology, all those sectors. And regarding all the other industries, meaning critical supplies, they just pass the economic burden down to the people. So why more sanctions? Well, more sanctions, Lisa, as you know, it's because the Iran regime is not stopping. I mean, uh, the previous administration, we'll come back to that later, has been the architects, one of the architects of the so-called Iran deal, which was supposed to stop Iran from building that bomb and from arming strategically and from acquiring the missiles. What has happened is just the opposite. It received the money uh, from the Iran deal and it proceeded in arming itself Reminding me as a historian of how the National Socialists, the Nazis, Hitler, uh, in the 30s was supposed to be not producing weapons, not arming Germany, and they did. So the price was very, very large. And here again, the Trump administration realized that if we don't stop the Iran regime with or without the United Nations, with or without 
this international coalition, there will be a price to be paid, not just by the United States, but also by our allies and the populations in the Middle East. So putting those additional sanctions, which I consider are strategic and very sensitive and targeted, as you just mentioned in the introduction, is the right thing to do. It's not the only thing to do, but it's the right thing to do at this point in time. Right. And as you mentioned, this is you know part of what the, the Trump administration has done, as we call it, the pressure campaign. Where do you see this, these sanctions fitting into that pressure campaign? And how would you assess that pressure campaign? Is it even working? Yeah, I think it's working. Now we need to rethink after the elections, obviously, when the next administration, hopefully it's a Trump administration, will continue this work without Lisa. And you know, and your audience knows that without this domestic pressure here at home, which in my own book, I would say, has been delaying uh, serious strategic actions against the regime. But having said that, uh, the pressure, maximum pressure campaign was able to slow down the expansion of the Iranian regime. We are also, in addition to those sanctions, deployed in Iraq, deployed across the Gulf. We are putting pressure also worldwide on the allies of the Iran regime, including the Venezuela regime and others. So all that pressure has delayed has slowed down the Iran regime, but obviously when time will come, end of 2020, early 2021, there need to be another mega strategy to this time, uh, you know, compel the regime to change policy or the Iranian people will will, will do what they have, what it'll have to do. Right. And I mean, everything you're saying is logical to me, logical to you and, and, and to most, I would say. But why, for example, you have two two things I want to ask you. First is, why are the Europeans so opposed to it? Why have they stood in the way and have always wanted to go soft on the mullahs? And secondly, the left here in this country, they understand, mm -hmm. you know, that North Korea, China, rogue regimes, but they still want to play kumbaya with Iran's regime. Why is that? You know, Lisa, in the old days, a few years ago, we would say they have a different vision of the world. They have a different ideological agenda. I don't believe that's the cause anymore because with time, with maturity, with analysis, we realize that both um, you know, the European governments, Brussels, and the supporters of the Obama uh, uh, administration, of the Obama uh, you know, establishment as well, the ones you call the left wing, they have an interest, an actual strategic interest in this Iran deal. And that's what I'm bringing for, uh, for, for discussion to the American public this month and hopefully in the next uh, months to come. Can I ask you to be, can I ask you to be very specific? Because we hear this all the time. The Europeans have interest. What specifically is their interest specifically regarding Iran? Why do they want to be there? Well, that, that, that's the issue. That's the core of the issue, uh, Lisa. The European governments listen to whom? To the European companies, European large companies, which because of the Iran deal, because of the fact that we sent the United States and then their allies $150 billion to the Iran regime from frozen assets. Yes, that belongs to the Iranian people, not to the Iranian regime. Exactly. But what is, what is beyond that, beyond that hill? It's not just the $150 billion that we worry about, which they use, by the way, Lisa, to buy more weapons. It's this whole rush by European and in the past, before the withdrawal from the Iran, the American companies to connect with the Iran regime and to do business with the Iran regime. That would be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Therefore, Brussels and the various governments in Europe are pressured by the lobbies of these companies. They don't want to let go because they're, they're making money out of it. And these companies basically are very influential 
and they are behind many of the governments and political parties operating in Europe. Same would apply here in the United States, believe it or not, many of our companies and financial interests who wanted to hook up with the Iran regime to make more money, obviously they're going to fight the withdrawal from the deal because it's not just about ideas, it's about interests. Now, now, isn't it, it, it's such hypocrisy though. You see on the left in this country, all they do is advocate for human rights, for women's rights, for equality. Well, don't you see the women of Iran coming out to protest and being arrested for just taking off their headscarf? Or this wrestler, Navida Kari, who was just executed, murdered, murdered for actually attending a peaceful protest. I mean, how do we illustrate this hypocrisy and, and set them straight? This, Lisa, was the scandal of the first part of the uh, 21st century. The relationship, the attitude of what I call the neo-Bolsheviks in the West in general and in the United States, and I'm going to be very specific, including Antifa, but not just Antifa, that's at the far uh, left. You have also a large segment of the you know, political establishment of the opposition here, namely the Democratic Party, who for reasons that are unknown to many, and we know some of these reasons have shifted from su- being supportive to democratic forces, forces of change. You know, when, right. when they were backing the struggle in South Africa or decolonization, so suddenly they stopped and they changed. And they are siding with the most fascist, oppressive, authoritarian regimes. Should it be in Iran? And you just mentioned what has been happening in Iran, but in three other countries, maybe four countries. I mean, when last fall we had those huge demonstrations by huge women, minorities in Iraq, not a word from the pro-Iran deal crowd here. In Lebanon, the whole Cedars revolution years ago and then another revolution started last October and in Syria and in Yemen as well. So what is happening is that what was known as the social democratic liberal movement is not what it is anymore. It's now more to the left. And uh, one would uh, see that in their narrative, there is a support to the Iranian regime. That is the most troubling matter about it. And obviously we all know what that, why that shift is. It's because of, of one man sitting in the White House. When he kills the shadowy commander Qasem Soleimani, all over Iran, you have you know, parties, you have cakes that actually say on it, damn it, damn Trump, which translates to viva Trump or long live President Trump. And then here in this country, you have a criticism as to why did you kill their, you know, it would be like somebody killing Vice President Pence. I mean, could it really be that it's because of just one man that they can't, they just, they just can't accept that what, what is good and what's bad is bad. What's good for the Middle East is good. Why do they have to think about it? Lisa, we, we could push it a little bit further. I am beginning to believe that it's not just a hatred of one man. The hatred of one man is because he has done something. Uh, and that something was to remove the most important pillar of their power, which was the Iran deal in foreign policy, obviously, and all of the income that this Iran deal was bringing to the circles that basically are funding them or funding most of them. So he has willingly or unwillingly, because he was doing the right thing strategically for America, has stepped into the dismantling of the most important element in their foreign policy. And that's why they want him out of the White House by all means. That explains a lot of the things we've seen. Right. Right. That's interesting. It's like look around the world and see who our enemies want in the upcoming election. And then think about 
think about it. You know, why do our enemies push for a, a Biden presidency? What will they gain by it? Or, you know, so many, um, you know, factions around the world say, just wait till the election is over, meaning they think yeah. they're going to have it real easy if there should be a, a Biden presidency, which I want to segue now because I think we we're, we want to talk about, you know, the comparisons between mm. the last eight years that we had a, a Obama-Biden presidency in foreign policy and the last four, we had a Trump foreign policy. And that brings me to um, your book called The Choice, obviously um, alluding to the uh, differences in foreign policy and national security styles of the Obama-Biden years versus the Trump years. What's the general takeaway of the book and what prompted you to write it? What prompted me to write this book, The Choice, and basically it's a comparison, as you just mentioned, between the Obama-Biden eight years and, of course, the four years of the Trump-Pence uh, presidency. But it's, it goes really beyond that. I mean, back in 2008, when Obama was elected, there was already a movement in, uh, in the United States uh, since 2006, maybe before coming from universities, from campuses by far left and then pro-Islamist, Muslim Brotherhood and pro-Iranian uh, lobbies that they wanted to put immense pressure to change the foreign policy of the United States, the one that has started since the end of the Cold War, from Reagan to, uh, to Bush. And that was basically through an election. And that's why the election of uh, then-Senator uh, Barack Obama and becoming the president and bringing into the presidency and the administration teams that responded more so to the far left and the pro-Islamist and, and, and Khomeinist uh, elites, that changed the policy of the United States. That what happened under the eight years of foreign policy were, number one, the speech to the Muslim Brotherhood in June of 2009. Then the letter by President Obama to Khamenei, Ali Khamenei of Iran, also in June of 2009. Then all that policy that partnered with the radicals and the jihadists and the Islamists throughout the Arab Spring, one after the other. And finally, in 2015, the signing and the launching of the Iran deal. In addition to the fact that in national security, in homeland security, every doctrine that we have been building since 2004 with the 9-11 Commission has been changed. That's why the concern now that we see young generations are coming out of those universities they have been basically, you know, I don't want to say brainwashed, but the, the doctrine that we had in defense of this country has been shattered by these eight years. You can, in say, return, you can say brainwashed. I, yeah, I will say it if you authorize it. And then we had, we had the Trump revolution, the Trump revolution in terms of changing that direction back to the doctrine of national security of the United States. And in four years, he dismantled some of these aspects, not all of the aspects of the previous uh, the Obama Doctrine on National Security, beginning first, obviously, by the full destruction of ISIS. That was very important. And with ISIS, there are now the uh, efforts by the administration to go after the radical ideologies that are not just present worldwide, but also President Trump formed a regional coalition, the Arab coalition, when he went to Riyadh and addressed more than 50, 52 Arab and Muslim leaders. And he asked them to drive terrorism out of their region. That was huge. It was never done before in the previous eight years. It was just the opposite. And last but not least, the withdrawal in 2018 from the Iran revolution, from the Iran deal, and putting after that, the months after that, the Pasdaran, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard on uh, terrorists. So 
eight years of Obama took America in one direction, four years of Trump took it back to a different direction. And now the choice is to Americans to decide which direction you want, which is more compatible and would serve the national security of the United States. Now, I want to delve into a bit of what you just said with regards to the Obama-Biden foreign policy and national security. You know, obviously, it sounds, again, logical to you and I. You know, one president wants to decrease the influence of radicalism, um, Mm -hmm. terrorism in the world, and the other was helping promote that and spread it and and really um, take the U.S. out of any conversation. Let's lose our seat at the table to be involved in any decision-making that involves the stability of the region, that includes the future of the region. And here, juxtapose that president with President Trump, who, who, who does everything in his power to um, contribute to that peace and stability and, um, you know, really making America uh, the exceptional world power that it was and should be and will be. Um, but I, I want to go back to the Obama-Biden presidency. And I, and I know that um, you are the foremost expert on this because you have not only lived in the Middle East, but you love the United States. You are a true patriot. And there are very few people who have that, um, that, that ability to see and understand both cultures, both yeah. political machines, and both foreign policies. What was it? What was it? that inspired, drove President Obama on his foreign policy and national security agenda in the Middle East? That's a fascinating uh, question that needs um, a long protracted assessment for the American public to understand, but we can summarize it as such. The genesis, the genesis of that thinking that America is bad, America was colonial, the United States played a wrong role throughout modern history, that the Obama-Biden administration have been promoting. And we saw and heard clearly in the speeches and the letters to the radical forces in the region. I mean, if you go back to the speech in Cairo and then the letter to Khamenei, both in June of 2009, we would know that what President Obama then was trying to do is to change the perception of the radicals in the region towards America by saying, we made a strategic mistake, we made a historical mistake, we're gonna make it better by accepting what you are demanding. That's the genesis of it. Now, where does it come from? It comes from the classroom. It comes from our universities. It comes from, you know, years and years, I have been a professor since 1991, 92, uh, in the US on campuses, and I've seen that movement spreading. And basically what that radical movement wanted to do was to change the mind of American students. And you know, from the classroom, graduates would go where? They would go to the newsroom. They would go to the courtrooms. They would go to the war rooms. And that's what we are seeing now. Years and years, two generations have passed since the end of the Cold War. That was what you and I could call now a brainwashing, a changing of perception. So the past administration came from that platform, from the university, whereby it was, a point to make that the United States need to go along the lines of the agenda of the Islamists, of the Khomeinis, of the Brotherhood. Now, that went against the perception of most Americans. This is why they responded, the American public responded in 2016 by choosing the candidate who was most able to change that direction. And the biggest game is going to be now. 
in these elections and the congressional elections that would follow, what would the American public choose? But to summarize uh, my, my answer, I would say, look who was funding the classroom from at least, at least end of the 80s and throughout the 90s and beyond. Those radical forces, the petrodollars, the Iranian regime and others have found ways to influence our programs in Middle Eastern studies, Lisa. And those programs have influenced an entire elite, which eventually produced the Obama administration and eventually produced a change in our foreign policy. People talk about foreign influence in our political system. The mother of all foreign influences is and was the petrodollars spent on our universities. You know, Dr. Ferris, everything you say makes total sense. I mean, when you connect the dots and you think to yourself, you know, does the average American voter see all of this? I mean, that's what's scary, right? I mean, I, when I started in this business, everyone I spoke to would tell me on election years, you can sit on the side, you can go relax on the beach because nobody is talking foreign policy in an election year. And when you connect the dots for us, it's pretty evident that these are some of the most, if not the most um, important topics. I mean, how important is national security, foreign policy uh, in this election and to the average American voter? Well, Lisa, that's a crucial matter. I tried to raise it already when I was a uh, national security advisor to the Romney campaign back in 2011, 2012. There was a lot of meddling uh, in our elections by the Iran regime, by the way, by the Brotherhood, other radicals. And then again in 2016, as we learned, and this time even more because the foreign influence operation reaches deep inside America. It's an open society, it's a democratic society. And we see radicals, including those who are involved in violent riots to that point, let alone the operation with media that comes from foreign actors. And all the agencies are talking about it. The only difference is they are not explaining to the American public why foreign policy, why foreign affairs are so important in the most important decision-making processes, which are elections. Right. I mean, and, and to what extent would you say that these, you know, our, our national security, whatever is happening outside the United States, is involved in orchestrating what's currently going on inside the States? And now, Dr. Ferris, I don't want us to be politically correct. We can yeah. speak openly. I mean, everyone's watching the unraveling of America on the yeah. streets. I mean, it's going on all around us. We know what their agenda is. We know yeah. what they want to do. We know that they don't love this country. Actually, they, they want to destroy this country. They, they have a very different view, a guilt for some reason about what this country is. I mean, how did this come about? And what are, I think you, you really nailed it when you say it's not, it's not even about you know national security being somewhere in Iraq or Syria anymore. We're yeah. now talking about national security on our own streets. So yeah. make that connection for us. Who's behind well, this? Well, How can we? Right. Yeah, you're right. National security is now in our cities, on our streets. I don't want to cut you off, but basically what has been happening has been building since the end of the Cold War throughout the 90s and over the past 10, 15 years. But there was a crucial time, in my view, the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration, whereby there was a complete radicalization of our campuses. That's crucial because from the campuses, from the classroom, as we argued before, you're gonna get graduates who are gonna travel to the newsroom, that's the media, 
and the media would do a bad job in informing the American public or would protect those radicals as exactly is happening now. They would travel to the courtroom. If we don't have a courtroom, tribunals, court system, judges who understand the reality of overseas and national security, we're gonna end up having all these conflicts and on and on all these rooms that affect our national security, our economy as well. So we had that big gap, especially under the eight years of uh, President Obama. And also we have an insertion of influence. And I'm gonna make the case for at least for one, and there are multiple uh, ones. When the Obama administration signed the Iran deal, what did they do? They sent $150 billion to the Iran regime. But that was not only the Iran regime, it was a controlled Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Yemen. And all these forces have radical networks basically have used that money, first of all, to reinforce their own military, but they used it very smartly into buying media in the Middle East and including in the West, specifically in the United States. There's a study that shows that from the Iran deal in 2015, when those huge sums were uh, spent into now, five years later, there is an entire section of the media, bloggers, people who work with the so-called mainstream media who completely shifted in support of the radicals. So now we are basically at the harvest time of all this radicalization and penetration by the radicals that was allowed, just one example, by the Iran deal. I mean, are these, this, this infiltration of media, I mean, they're basically influencers, just like fashion influencers. These are right. influencers. They are exactly what you said. They're paid to bring about that viewpoint because nowadays everybody's a journalist, right? Anybody who has a Twitter account yeah. or a Facebook page or an Instagram account could be a journalist. But the influence that you're talking about, is this, the? are you talking about the mainstream media? Are you talking about these bloggers and t t Twitter accounts and, and so on? You know, Lisa, you know as much as I do. You've been in this business for many years. Uh, we, I, I, I remember that when they started, let's say somewhere around 2009 and 10 into the Romney campaign, myself, I'll give you my own example. I was hit by publications such as Mother Jones, such as bloggers online. It was not yet the mainstream, but they were coordinating the same arguments, the same attacks to make sure that people like you and I, who are experts on foreign policy and Middle Eastern affairs and national security will be hit. And many of my colleagues were, you know, oh, no. smeared and attacked. And then over the years in, uh, in 2016, then it escalated to more mainstream. I was hit by the New York Times and by, you know, CNN trying to do stuff. And recently now it's hitting the Washington Post and most recently New York Times has been involved in the same type of arguments. There is right. no difference anymore between Mother Jones, New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN. Exactly. And that is a major, major development right. that we haven't seen before. Yeah, no, and I know that you've been, you know, a, a victim of so much of that slander and for, for no good reason. I mean, the good reason being that you are the foremost expert and everyone recognizes you as such. And they know that you the, the important ears are you know listening to you and what you have to say about the region but i personally struggle with this the, mm. the the answer to the question as to is the media just uninformed or are they radicalized meaning you know when i started out i was actually an intern at nbc it turned into my first job this is right out of graduate school 
And I remember one day they called me from the main office. I mean, this is the, hot, the, the president of NBC wanted to talk to me, an intern. I was like, oh, okay, I'll go upstairs. What did he, uh, they wanted to, me to clarify the difference between Shiite and Sunni Islam. Yeah. And I walked out of there and I said, oh my God, mm-hmm. you know, we are dealing with a repositioning at that time. This is, you know, over a decade and a half ago, but we're dealing with, you know, repositioning of the Middle East revolving around these two religions and the conflict between them, et cetera. Meaning it was such a basic notion that they didn't bother to learn about or even Google. I'm going to even simplify it as, as much as that. So I walked away with, okay, they just don't know any better. But now the things that you're pointing to looks like this is, you know, destruction by design, by not design. by ignorance. I'm, I'm going to give you two examples that I lived and I experienced. Mother Jones is known to have conducted the longest campaign of defamation against me simply because I was twice appointed by presidential candidates as their advisor. So the, the goal is to intercept right. Yeah, the, the goal is not to have me serve in any administration because I would indicate to the decision makers what I think should be the right thing uh, uh, or, or not. And, and even those who were appointed, look what happened in 2016, 17, 18, they were all attacked, uh, those who were appointed by Donald Trump, for example. But Mother Jones this year attacks me because I speak about Libya. Okay, so we looked at the sources that Mother Jones have used. Guess who they are? The, the, the Muslim Brotherhood. The same talking points were brought in by the Muslim Brotherhood. New York Times, few months ago, three months ago, attacks me and then says that I favor Egypt over others. Well, of course, <laughs> favor those who are against the Brotherhood. But then what, what we obtained information is that the lobby of Qatar and the Brotherhood established in 2018, I didn't have the numbers for 19 and 20, more than 70 contact with the New York Times proposing articles. I mean, th- this is a national security uh, scandal. And on and on and on with other publications. I mean, the Washington Post, for example, had a smear against me. We looked at the work of the author of that smear, and we realized he's totally pro-Iran deal. So it's not anymore, oh, they don't know. It's not anymore, they didn't get a good academia. It's connection with lobbies uh, who target national security and foreign policy people like you and myself. Well, I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I've I've been watching from you know from a I should say a close distance because I, I obviously we've been friends for many years and I know that you know this is is it's it's so ideological, um yeah. and, and you know it's I'm not into the doomsday uh, you know I'm not that part of that camp at all but I am in in the in the camp that wants to educate and give That's people right. knowledge which is what you do every single day so I want you to give us give us give us the lowdown. What would a Biden-Harris foreign policy, national security look like? And what will it do to this country for the next four to eight years? That's the mother of all questions. And that's a crucial time to debate and discuss it. Number one, in my view, it's going to be a Biden-Harris-Obama administration, because the team Mm -hmm. that will go in uh, with a a President Biden, President-elect Biden, is going to be the same team that did the work on foreign policy and national security for the uh, Obama administration. Number two, it's a very important to understand, is that they have given us already an example of what they will do with looking at what they have done the eight years of the Obama administration. And, he, and here's a rundown, very simple rundown. 
So President Trump withdrew from the Iran deal. A Biden-Harris Obama administration are going to go back to the Iran deal with catastrophic uh, consequences. Imagine the United States going back to the Iran deal, which means removing all the sanctions. You're an expert on sanctions and all that. Removing all the sanctions, bringing back the Iran regime to the international community, opening the Iran regime markets, that's for the, for the government, not for the people, back to American companies. So a huge influx of money is going to go to that regime after four years of Trump mm -hmm. sanctions. That's number one. It means on the ground, and you know it very well, that Iraq's revolution is gone, Lebanon's revolution is gone, Yemen and Syria, all of that. It's going to be like a Yalta agreement. You have the Middle East and we have America, and then you, uh, as, as, uh, you do as much as you want. Second, they're going to be a direct threat against the peace treaties that were signed by the UAE and Bahrain and Israel. Why? Because Iran is against those peace treaties. Iran will be the dominant force in the region. They will use Hezbollah. They will use Hamas. They will use terrorism as they've done a little bit of it uh, over the past few years against the UAE, against Saudi Arabia to stop it from coming. So I could go on for, for long, long minutes, maybe an hour to discuss the drama that would come as a result of reinstating the Iran deal. But second, Lisa, you have the comeback to a full partnership with the Muslim Brotherhood. But with that, it means that we are going to be putting, that Biden administration would be putting huge pressure on the Sisi government of Egypt, right. on the Gulf governments, on all those allies who have, like in Tunisia and other places, been trying to rise against the ideology of the Brotherhood. So. It would be catastrophic, at least when it comes to the greater Middle East. And obviously, when it comes with regard to China and all what we know about the Biden-China connection, it's going to dismantle all the policy of economic independence that uh, President Trump has been able to achieve. It's going to be a partnership with the Maduro regime in Venezuela. It's going to be pressure mm -hmm. actually on our ally, the new Brazilian ally uh, in, uh, that, that came to power in 2018 and on and on. With regard to borders, I mean... I, you know as much as I know that it would be a reversal of the wall, a reversal of our national security, uh, build up uh, the border and a complete open border policy, which means that there will be hundreds of thousands of individuals coming illegals, if we call them technically speaking, and that is going to add to the radicalization that we are seeing now in front of our own eyes. Imagine opening the borders while Portland, while Seattle, mm -hmm. while New York and other places are exploding with that income, with that incoming uh, demographic of activists, not talking about the population, it's going to look really, really bad. Right. And, you know, you touched upon something I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, you know, this, this deal, the Abraham Accords between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, and now, um, you know, Donald Trump and Jared Kushner have uh, alluded to, you know, a list of other countries that may, may and will soon uh, join that list and sign the accords as well. Um, there was a report, I think, in the last 24 hours about Jared Kushner getting even closer to the Saudi regime to have a conversation. People are diminishing this to nothing. I mean, yeah. this is truly historic. I mean, yeah. I mean, you tell us, tell us. Game changer, historic game changer. And I can give you my own opinion as a witness to the genesis of this. You remember I was a foreign policy advisor of the Trump campaign in 2016. That was before this becomes actually policy. I have been 
in conversations with leaders from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, from all these countries, and they were watching what's going to happen in America, which line is going to succeed. Would it be a Clinton-Obama policy or would it be a Trump policy? And since they knew about Obama and Clinton, they didn't know much about uh, President Donald Trump or candidate Donald Trump. We had those conversations. And here's what I heard from them. First, during the campaign, during the transition, and early on in 2017. They were ready for that. They were absolutely ready to see a change of direction in the United mm -hmm. States so that they would come and conclude those peace treaties with Israel. Why were they ready? It's not because the rulers wanted it. It's because societies, people, because of Facebook, yeah. social media, change of ideas. And you know it very well. I mean, if Iran is free from this regime, what do you think the Iranian people would do? They would join the Abraham Accord if Lebanon is free from Hezbollah. So there is a massive change that took place in the Middle East that the Obama policy stopped from happening for eight years and that the Donald Trump administration and policy was able to open the doors, open the gates, bring these uh, countries together. And the problem is that it happened in 2020. It should have happened in 2017. But this massive opposition, this very fierce opposition, uh, against the Donald Trump uh, administration, and we all know about it, for three years and a half, delayed it. Having said that, it's almost a miracle when you see it happening after so many decades of right. war confrontations. And it's, it's mind-boggling that people don't see how tremendous this is. I call this the real Arab Spring, because yeah. this is the Arab people showing the world that we don't want to be kept back. And, yeah. you know, the, what people think, the myth that has been prolonged for such a, a, a long period of time is that, you know, peace in the Middle East is only about the Palestinians and the Israelis. Once they That's have right. peace, then the whole, we're going to have a utopia. Yeah. But now the people are saying, listen, we're so past that. The Palestinian people, they were offered something they didn't want it. It was dead on arrival. Push it to the side. They, the, the Arab people want more. And they, you know, the Palestinians are not on their minds. Their own future is on their minds. They want to get a COVID vaccine. They want to get technology. They want to get water irrigation uh, methods, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you 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 painted a, a, a the correct picture is that this should have happened a long time ago, but but thank God it happened now. And this will um, be very significant. This will be a line in the sand uh, with regards to Middle East, the Middle East, and and how it will be um, going forward. You know, I want to end with this. Um, it's been a very busy um, couple of months for the Trump administration with regards to um, pulling troops out of the region, uh, putting sanctions on Iran where they are needed, on the um, uh, focusing on human rights in Iran as needed, and of course yeah. the Abraham Accords being, you know, the, the crown jewel being, you know, something that's just truly historic, as we said. Doesn't this put the onus on the Biden-Harris? campaign to come up with something the only thing they're running on is that they're not trump it could be mickey mouse i mean yeah. doesn't it put this responsibility on them to give us some answers what will they do for us i mean what does it look like look this book is precisely about the debate that you have engaged right now what i'm trying to do is show the american public what the eight years of the obama biden administration have offered in terms of foreign policy versus the four years of the Trump administration's achievements in foreign policy. Now, the test was this summer, and still ongoing, and there's still a month and a half, maybe. So if the Obama-Harris team wants to show the American public what would 
their administration look like in terms of worldwide relationship, it's now. It's now or never because the American public now is going to do a choice, obviously on domestic affairs first. And let me share with you one quick thing. In my view, foreign policy will play a tremendous role and any role is played as important in these politics. But violence in the city, the urban violence is probably going to be what would decide a majority of Americans to, cho to choose from this side or the other side. Everything can be negotiated, foreign policy, economy, but one thing cannot be negotiated, which is national security and national safety. What Americans have seen in those cities and the legitimization that came from the opposition, from the Biden-Obama-Harris camp, is going probably to be a major player in the role of deciding who to vote for. Yes, perfectly said, perfectly said. Dr. Ferris, you are a superstar. Where can people get your book? Absolutely, the easiest way in this COVID-19 era is on online Amazon. We're going to set up also, yes. Amazon is the answer, but not just Amazon. We're going to set up also an account for people who want my book signed. So they could visit me on my Twitter account, at Walid Ferris, or Facebook, Walid Ferris. Uh, I think a lot of people will take you up on that. I know I'm not your only biggest fan. I think you have a lot of big fans the out there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us. I very much enjoyed this conversation. I know I learned a lot. I know listeners will as well. Thank you all for tuning in. Remember to sign up for my daily email at foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter and to subscribe to the podcast so you can catch it every week. Thank you so much.